0: So glad
1: you could be with us for this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. And with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We continue looking at books that were given as Christmas gifts by the First Presidency during the years 1981 to 2017. And as we've mentioned many times in this series, the reason why we feel that it's important to look at these books is because obviously you would think that the men who gave these books as a Christmas gift believed what was written inside of these books, and would also want the people receiving the books as a gift to believe what's inside of them as well. We continue looking at a book that was given away as a Christmas gift in the year 1991, and it's Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. We're going to begin by looking at a subject pertaining to This exclusivity of Mormonism that was actually denied by James Talmadge, who was a Mormon apostle, in the book Articles of Faith on page 468, where he makes it very clear that Mormonism is not exclusive. But in light of the comment that Eric is about to read, you answer that question for yourself. Does that sound a little exclusive or or inclusive?
2: Page 192, it says many objections are urged against the Latter-day Saints for not admitting the validity of sectarian baptism and for withholding fellowship from sectarian churches.
1: It's that last portion of that sentence that I'm referring to, folks, where it says that the objections against the LDS Church, not only for not recognizing baptism from another group, as they say, the sectarian baptism, but it's the withholding fellowship from sectarian churches. This goes back to the idea that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true church on the face of the earth, and this is found in section 1, verse 30 of the Doctrines and Covenants. But they certainly do exclude everyone else From that kind of a description, they would say that all other churches, besides their own, are in a state of apostasy.
2: And the way you can know that for sure is if you're a Christian and you tell a Latter-day Saint that you have been baptized and ask if that's sufficient, they'll have to say no because you have to be baptized in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it starts right from the very beginning. Another citation, this has to do with the issue of Hell Bill on page 316 of teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, I see no faults in the church, and therefore let me be resurrected with the saints, whether I ascend to heaven or descend to hell or go to any other place. And if we go to hell, we will turn the devils out of doors and make a heaven of it.
1: And if we go to hell, we will turn the devils out of doors and make a heaven of it. I don't think I can say anything more to just how incredibly arrogant that statement is.
2: Another quote given in the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 162, being born again comes by the Spirit of God through ordinances.
1: What this is basically telling us is that the process, it's a process of being born again. It was Bruce McConkie who kind of elaborated on this in his book, Mormon Doctrine, page 101, where he describes being born again as something you must do. In this case, it's water baptism. Now, certainly as New Testament Christians, we see no, no definitive teaching on this whatsoever, but certainly this is the case in Mormonism.
2: One of the things that Joseph Smith likes to do is speculate, and so he's going to speculate on what Paul looked like. On page 180, he says, description of Paul, given by the prophet Joseph, January fifth, 1841, at the organization of a school of instruction. Quote, he is, talking about Paul, about five feet high, very dark hair, dark complexion, dark skin, larger Roman nose, sharp face, Small black eyes, penetrating as eternity. Round shoulders, a whining voice, except when elevated, and then it almost resembled the roaring of a lion. He was a good orator, active and diligent, always employing himself in doing good to his fellow man. Now, Bill, when I read this quote originally... I had to ask myself, how does he think that he knew anything about Paul? Because we have no video, we have nothing to help us understand what he looked like, certainly the idea that he was shorter, but, I mean, even to have a larger Roman nose.
1: That's a great question. I think the answer to that question is, is, well, once you've accepted Joseph Smith as a prophet of God, all those type of questions are no longer relevant or actually seen as a challenge to his authority. So most Latter-day Saints probably wouldn't even try to question him on that matter. You just accept it at face value.
2: I don't think probably many Latter-day Saints have ever heard of that quote before. I hadn't. And, uh, and just understanding what he's saying, that he has the knowledge to be able to explain the description of Paul is, is beyond me. Uh, a quote on repentance. This is on page 148. It's also quoted in the History of the Church, Volume 3, page 379. And Joseph Smith said, Repentance is a thing that cannot be trifled with every day. Daily transgression and daily repentance is not that which is pleasing in the sight of God.
1: And you know, I don't really have a problem with this statement as he is given it here. The problem I have is when you have a lot of Latter-day Saints tell you that you have to keep all the commandments in order to be approved by God in order to achieve celestial exaltation. If you're going to be keeping all the commandments, then it would seem that you would not have to repent at all. But yet, those same Latter-day Saints, while insisting they're supposed to keep all the commandments, don't seem to see an inconsistency in saying that they repent on a regular basis. I think what Joseph Smith is saying here is consistent in the context of Mormonism, because if commandment keeping is a requirement, in other words, keeping the commandments continually as it teaches in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 25, verse 15, then daily transgression and daily repentance wouldn't be pleasing in the sight of God. You shouldn't be doing that on a regular basis. If you're keeping the commandments regularly as you're supposed to, you would not have a need for this type of daily repentance that Joseph Smith is talking about.
2: Doctrine and Covenants section 58, 42, and 43 says this, "...behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more." By this he may know, if a man repenteth of his sins, behold, he will confess them and forsake them. So this idea that you should not brag about repenting on a regular basis, because if you're truly repenting, then you're supposed to, as D&C 5843 says, forsake them. I think that's something a lot of Latter-day Saints don't understand and misuse what the meaning of repentance is all about.
1: They may understand it, they just can't live up to that standard. That could possibly be the case. Now, what about this quote on page 157 in the book, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, regarding priesthood and Adam?
2: He says, "...the priesthood was first given to Adam. He obtained the first presidency and held the keys of it from generation to generation. He obtained it in the creation before the world was formed, as in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26-28." or He had dominion given him over every living creature. He is Michael the Archangel, spoken of in the Scriptures.
1: Now, there's a lot of questions that come to my mind when I read this portion. The priesthood was first given to Adam. He obtained the first presidency. The first presidency, as it's understood in modern Mormonism today, wasn't even a part of the LDS Church in the very early years. But if Adam obtained the first presidency... Who belonged to this First Presidency? Today, you have three men who make up the First Presidency, the prophet and his two counselors. So I'm kind of curious as to who would have been the two counselors to Adam if he, in fact, was the head of the First Presidency, which wouldn't that have also made him the prophet, as it is in Mormonism right now?
2: Well, you have Cain and Abel. Perhaps you could put Cain and Abel in, and then... When one of them dies, then you put in Seth. I mean, I don't know, you'd have to make some things up to make him part of the First Presidency if we're understanding First Presidency the same way that Latter-day Saints understand First Presidency today.
1: Well, here's another portion of this sentence that is a bit confusing. He mentions Genesis 1, 27, and 28. Adam obtained this priesthood before the world was formed, and then those verses are given as proof text. There's no mention in those verses of anything like priesthood, especially the way Mormons understand it today. I don't understand why those verses are even put there, because they're completely irrelevant to the topic of the priesthood. But then it says that he had dominion given him over every living creature. He is Michael the Archangel. Now, here's what strikes me. This is on page 157 of the book, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. But yet if you go down the page, on page 157, You find another description of Adam under the subheading, Adam, the oldest man. And it says this, Daniel, in his seventh chapter, speaks of the Ancient of Days. He means the oldest man, our father Adam, Michael he will call his children together and hold a council with them to prepare them for the coming of the Son of Man. So he's not only Michael the archangel, he's also the Ancient of Days. Now this becomes problematic because Bible scholars would tell us that the Ancient of Days mentioned in the book of Daniel is a reference to God the Father. So how can it be both Michael the archangel and God the Father at the same time? It seems like that would be a contradiction. But I've always wondered, is that maybe where Brigham Young got the notion that Adam is God? Because of this statement made by Joseph Smith, where he refers to Adam being the Ancient of Days. Did Brigham Young understand the Ancient of Days as being a title for God in the book of Daniel and equate Adam with God? I can't prove it, but I think that's a theory worth investigating. It could have been.
2: Bill, we've been going through the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith this week. It's a book that was given away in 1991 by the First Presidency to general authorities as well as employees of the Church. Would you recommend Latter-day Saints today picking up this book and reading through it? Do you think that would be instructional for them?
1: I think it would be instructional for them, only because of the respect that they have for Joseph Smith. But I think if they were to examine carefully some of the strange things that Joseph Smith said, they're probably going to find a huge difficulty in justifying what he said with what the Bible has to say at the same time. Because as we've said many times, not only in this series, but on this show, Joseph Smith can get away with just about anything because Mormons are not really even allowed to question the things that he teaches. And, as we've also pointed out in this series, according to Joseph Smith, there were no errors in any of the revelations that he taught.
0: As with most Christian organizations, Mormonism research ministry depends on the generous financial support of friends like you. If you like what we do and how we do it, would you consider helping MRM meet its financial obligations? Merely go to our website, MRM.org. At the right, you'll see a donate button. Click there and follow the instructions. MRM is a Christian nonprofit 501c3 organization and your gifts are tax deductible. Not only that, they are greatly appreciated. Thank you for your support of this ministry.